0: Michigan's Children proudly presents Speaking for Kids, the podcast where we explore crucial conversations impacting the lives of all Michigan children, youth, and families, especially the most vulnerable. Join us each month as we explore public policies and issues in the best interest of our kids and families. We'll bring you lawmakers and policymakers, advocates fighting for change, and the people most affected by those decisions. With our host, Matt Gillard, President and CEO of Michigan's Children, we'll invite you to become engaged too, and show you how to take action on what matters most to you. Episodes are recorded live and shared virtually on YouTube and the audio hosting sites, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.
1: Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of Speaking for Kids. I'm your host, Matt Gillard, the President and CEO of Michigan's Children. We're recording this episode on Thursday, December 2nd, 2021. Today's topic is a very timely one, Michigan's Child Welfare System and the recommendations of a new report from the State House Task Force, Task Force on Adoption and Foster Care. In a minute, you'll hear from three important guests with insider knowledge on Michigan's foster care system, an area of keen public policy interest for us here at Michigan's Children. First guest I'd like to welcome is Shannon Urban, the Executive Director of the New Foster Care. New Foster Care is a nonprofit focused on improving outcomes for children and families involved in Michigan's child protection system. Shannon has spent her career focused on family law specializing in child abuse and neglect cases, and currently serves on the State Bar's children's law section. Shannon and the new foster care provided valuable feedback to the task force. And she'll outline for us some areas of the report that had the potential for greatest impact on reforming our foster care system. And then I'd also like to welcome two very special alumni of Michigan's foster care system, Alexis and Justin Black. Alexis and Justin met at Western Michigan University in the STEDA Scholars Program in 2016 and recently co-authored their memoir, Redefining Normal, How Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discovered Healing, Happiness, and Love. The memoir details their childhoods in Michigan's foster care system and is focused on how trauma is normalized and passed down generationally, impacting the reality of daily life. Today, they've dedicated their careers to helping other young adults emerge from foster care through their work with initiatives they founded. The Scholarship Expert and the Rose Empowerment Group. Welcome. Shannon, let's start with you. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became involved, particularly with the task force.
2: Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm executive director at the new foster care. Um, Our agency works in sort of three areas. We have direct service programming that works with youth with experience in foster care after they age out. Um, We serve uh, uh, emerging adults from ages 14 to 29 as they transition from the juvenile system to adulthood. We also support programming in Michigan. We try to bring in um, evidence-based models from other states or even internal to Michigan that um, have the potential to have an impact on the way um, the child protection system is handled in Michigan. And then we also do some policy work, so um, a lot around educating legislators and the administration on um, the issues in the child welfare system and the child protection system. And so we um, reached out to the task force when it was um, announced to offer some insight and to um, provide some some ideas of, of directions that they could take in their recommendations. I started my career in um, as an attorney, as um, a lawyer guardian ad litem for youth involved in the system, and then also as a parent's attorney. So I have sort of that legal lens that I look at um, the system from in addition to having worked with social workers for most of my career.
1: Great. Thanks, Shannon. Um, Actually, an interesting side note before we get to Alexis and Justin, I actually started my career as an attorney as well and did a lot of uh, work and, and guardianship work up in the Alpena area before I ran for ran for office and got involved uh, with all of this rigmarole down here and right. <laughs> And I miss some days. That was the, the, one, of the, one of the better parts of being an attorney, I guess, was working with kids and, and helping kids and families through some difficult situations.
2: Yeah, in the trenches, right?
1: Absolutely. All right, Alexis <laughs> and Justice. Justin. Justin, uh, why don't you fill us in on the work that you're doing now to help empower and educate other young people with uh, experiences similar to yours in foster care?
3: Yeah, of course. So um, while being in the foster care system, I was able to learn a lot of the good that is in the system, as well as a lot of the bad and the, as well as the improvements. And a lot of the work we do now is trying to empower different stakeholders in the system as far as starting with the youth, the parents, caseworkers, lawyers, and everyone that is pretty much involved with the system. We're basically trying to focus in on their role in the lives of a community because we're all connected. So trying to see what role do you play in this community and how can we uplift the youth and uplift one another from the caseworkers to the parents, to the parents, to other people in the community. So what we do is now we're redefining normal. Um, We've written a book, but we've broken the book down with themes and the subjects using our lives as somewhat like almost a case study going around in the state of Michigan, but also around the country. Uh, doing presentations, workshops, uh, speeches around these concepts of how can we improve the lives of youth, how can we better support families and parents and the caseworkers and and other people involved in the system as well. So with the youth working on establishing goals, personal development, character development, as well as professional development overall. So as they go along the system, they have the tools that they need and they have the autonomy that they need to make the decisions for themselves and letting them know that they have, that and they can be successful and giving them the tools that they need to be successful as they transition into adulthood because we know the statistics around youth aging out of the system. We've also been able to be a uh, uh, national youth and Trans- transition database reviewers um, mm-hmm. where we uh, assess different uh, practices um, from each state and go through and see is the information being put in accurately for each youth from the social workers and caseworkers perspective and making sure that everything's uh, correctly reported on the youth and accurately uh, reported. So doing that work as well and many other things that I'm sure Alexis can expand on. And um, lastly, I would say uh, starting the ROSE Empowerment Group, which ROSE stands for Rising Over Societal Expectations. And People can't see my t-shirt, but I have the t-shirt on. Rising Over Societal mm-hmm. Expectations and Right now with uh, Rose, we're just doing our podcast where we just having these conversations about empowerment, uh, personal development, and understanding how we can all redefine normal in our lives and understanding what is normal from each person's perspective and overcoming that on our personal and professional level. So, Alexis,
4: anything to add? <laughs> he, so just- he's yeah. good at just some kind of summing it all <laughs> up right there but a little bit more background on us i guess um so we are married and we met in the city scholars program we both graduated from western um we uh yeah we wrote our book last year we became forbes uh, next 1000 also this year for our work so we're incredibly blessed to do this work and now we're we have the opportunity to travel the country and continue spreading the message on what is redefining normal and how everybody can take part in that movement.
3: Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing I'll also throw in is the campaign guide we have right now. So because this work in this conversation is bigger than ourselves, Because the book is largely just it's a memoir that you can learn a lot about and teaches a lot of lessons. But for youth themselves, we've been doing presentations around the companion guide that we created where we break it down into four presentations for each chapter. And they go through the questions and conversations that we needed to have to redefine our normal and when normal was or trauma was normalized in our lives. So we go through that companion guide and teach youth the steps of overcoming and redefining.
1: That's so great. Amazing. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And before we jump into maybe some more details on the report, where can we buy the book? Where can folks listen and buy the book? Selfless plug here.
3: Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so people can uh, find the book at read-definingnormal.com. And they can also get in contact with us on there and also at info at read-definingnormal.com. That's where they can get the book. Uh, the campaign guy and everything else redefining normal Mm -hmm.
4: and our audio book just came out so you can listen to us tell our story great that's so great all right thank you guys
1: so much uh for what you're doing thank you for being Mm -hmm. here today all right shannon let's get into a little bit more detail on the report itself on some of the highlights um as you see it from from the report and then maybe we can engage some conversation around what we think this could mean for kids in the system now in michigan and maybe what we can uh, collectively do to try to make some of this stuff happen.
2: Sure. You know, I think I was pleasantly surprised by how wide ranging the recommendations were. They really did seem to address um, sort of all areas of the child welfare system from CPS um, through permanency or adoption, Uh, especially for legislators. uh, I assume most people know they're just regular people. They don't necessarily have um expertise in this area. And so they did do a good job of reaching out to stakeholders to find out what the important issues were in child welfare. Um, and you know, for those of us that are immersed in the work, I think, you sometimes forget that not everyone knows exactly what is going on and what the issues are. So I thought that the task force did a really good job with that. I think from our perspective, there were three areas that really stood out. Um, The first one was the oversight that they recommended. So, you know, task forces in general are time barred, you know, they're a short term spending time looking at an issue, putting out recommendations, but um, then they they end. And so I liked that they were including um, something that would be something that would follow through. Um, oversight for the department, specifically for children's services, is something that we have been looking into for a while. There are some oversight options already in the system, but um, we thought that the idea of a nonpartisan, you know com- citizen commission that would stay in place, that would, um, still be there when there's changes in leadership that would be able to bring together the different recommendations that are out there and then make sure that they actually get implemented. I thought that that was really powerful. Um, I think that a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of different groups working on child welfare reform in Michigan. And a lot of recommendations that come out and then, you know, there's a report and then it gets put in a drawer and it might not ever be looked at again. So I think having that follow through with an oversight commission that would make sure that, that the really important recommendations actually get implemented. We thought that that was um, a really important inclusion. I think um, kinship care. I love that they had a whole section on kinship care that is Something that's really close to our hearts and the new foster care, we're working with the department right now to fund a pilot to bring um, a program from uh, Pennsylvania to Michigan that includes actually some of the ideas that came out of the report. So family finding, you know, the issue with kinship care is often that kin isn't identified early on in a case. And so then the kids go into foster care with non-kin and a lot of times the courts aren't willing to make a change when a child has been in a placement for a while, because we know placement disruption is traumatizing on its own. So having that front end work done to make sure that kin are identified right away and that children are staying in their families of origin is, is so important. You know, all of the statistics show out that, that placement with kin is just much better. Children have much better outcomes. They, it's less traumatizing. There's more placement stability. There is um, better levels of permanency. It increases the chances of reunification and they just have better behavioral and mental health outcomes when they stay with kin. So supporting that kin network, supporting, you know, the um, kinship as a whole in Michigan, I think is really important. And then um, going back to my work as a, an attorney, I loved all of the support for, you um, improvements in the court proceedings and support for attorneys that are working in the system. I think training is really important for attorneys. Um, I think that testing different ways of delivering legal services. So doing maybe some multidisciplinary work, having social workers and attorneys work together. um, I think that that can be really can really change the trajectory of the case. So those were the the three things that I think were the main um, takeaways from the report that we thought might have the biggest impact on the system.
1: That's that's great. And
2: that's um
1: Let's set this kinship care sound, kind of aside for a minute. We are planning, just so everyone knows, we're planning a, another podcast specifically on the kinship um, side of this, probably January or February, one of our next ones. But let's Sorry. talk a little bit about this idea of the independent oversight um, mm-hmm. mission. And I wonder, is may and Justin and Alexis, you may know this too, from your travels around the country. Are there other states that have a, a system set up like that or have some sort of um, formalized you know, independent group that kind of oversees their system and has it resulted in better outcomes?
3: We
4: haven't done as much research into what that is and what that looks like, but I do know, like say in Florida, um, Florida went from having, you know, some of the the worst rankings in child welfare in the nation to now being in the top. And what did they do around that? And so I know that a lot of that work came from having task force set up, having those oversight committees and creating different departments and different offices um, that have been launched even in the last I know this year they launched one, another one. And then I know that they've had several iterations in the past few years. So it's, it's that constant commitment to, to, How are we going to make sure that we're having that that independent oversight and all parties involved uh, and having really an investment in uh, on different stakeholders? Because there there has to be investment in on that process and what that looks like from all stakeholders or there's not going to be any sort of change. So that's what I've seen from looking at even Florida specifically. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and even just just having people paying attention to the issue, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as Shannon alluded to in her opening comments about the task force or the the report, is I mean legislators aren't familiar with this. In large part, I know this as a former legislator. Certainly, when I came into office, I was not familiar, and and even even kind of from an advocacy standpoint, I kind of crudely at Michigan's Children crudely separate our work into three different buckets: uh, one early childhood. there's a lot of people focused on early childhood. It's kind of the flavor of the day on the child advocacy side, a lot of efforts there. Um, And then when we talk about older children, the K-12 system obviously gets a lot, the school system, education side gets a lot of attention. There's a lot of big political players uh, involved. I call them the elephants in the room with the teachers unions and the charter school lobby and the school administrators and and a lot Mm. of folks there. But on the child welfare side, there's just not a whole lot of attention being paid and even a lot of engagement with the general public. And so a lot of times we're screaming from the rooftops just to get people to focus on these issues. And so, you know, I think from that regard, a task force really helps helps as well and I think the an independent commission kind of overseeing what the task force recommends and continually bringing this issue back to the forefront uh could hold a lot of could have a, a lot of positive impact or help really uh to to see to see through the changes that uh that are recommended and that we think need to happen so that's mm-hmm. great Shannon how about you any when when you, there was talk at the on the on from the task force about this independent commission were there other states that were looked at or or any detail about what that might look like
2: yeah there are you know so a lot of states develop the independent commissions in response to a lawsuit so as we all know michigan has Mm -hmm. been under lawsuit for i think we're going on 13 years now and um and so a lot of times they come about as uh an opportunity to get out from under a settlement agreement but Minnesota, Oklahoma, um, Tennessee, Texas, um, Oregon, I think, Virginia, quite a few states have um, these types of citizen oversight commissions. Um, I think to the point Alexis made too, bringing in the stakeholders, so having people sitting on a commission like this from private agencies, from DHS, from the court, you know, from the different areas. It's very rare that all of those people get in a room together to talk about how to fix the system, you know, and everyone has an impact. And so, you know, but we're all working in silos. So I think that that's another thing that, a, a, you know, an oversight commission like this could do would be to bring people together and hopefully people, you know, that, that have, um, that, you know, have it, that have the ability to have an impact at a higher level. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: All right. Let's jump in a little bit on the on the third point you made about training and support for um, for those involved on on kind of the legal side of this or on the mm-hmm. on the, the court side of this. So, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. As I mentioned earlier, I, I began my career as an attorney and and really. Um, I am thankful for it now, but as the youngest attorney at the firm, I was at up in, in Northern Michigan was immediately pushed into the, you know, the, the guardianship and, uh, right. the, and ch- children's advocacy work, um, w- without any really training or, or understanding or experience within that. Um, thankfully I had some a really good judge that I worked with closely who was very helpful, but, um, uh, what do you think Justin and Alexis about that? What was maybe your experience or, or experience that you hear from kids now in the system about the, you know, the representation that they're afforded in these proceedings and how that can be improved?
4: Yes. I'm glad you asked that actually. Cause when we, we just did a keynote in where were we Alpharet- we Alpharetta, Alpharetta. <laughs> in Georgia, we're traveling right now. I never know what state we're in. So <laughs> when we were in, uh, when we were in Georgia, we were doing a keynote and it was, primarily attorneys in the room mm-hmm. and, um, you know, obviously they're going to ask us what has our experience has been with attorneys and has that been, you know, impactful? Has that been helpful? You know, how can they improve? And we both honestly said, you know, we never had a, uh, you know, a relationship with our attorney. For me, my attorney would call me five minutes before he would go into court and say, all right, any updates? And I'm like, what if I mm-hmm. was homeless? What if I, had awful things that were happening and going on. Thankfully I am independent. I can figure things out. I'm resourceful. You know, I figured that out on my own. But I think he's relying on that as he goes into and in, as he goes into the court um, because he knows that I am versus checking in on me and having that relationship with me and building that. I never saw him as a resource. I never saw him as somebody who would actually advocate on my half versus the incredible social workers that I had, even though I had dozens like I you know mm-hmm. I could at released no for a fact that I had several that were in my corner and would advocate for me versus the attorney was like all right if I call him I would never get an answer I wrote him letters and he wouldn't still wouldn't respond and mm-hmm. um, you know I tried to ask how do I get a different attorney someone that would advocate for me but that wasn't an option because he was free and offered to me unless I wanted to pay for it so I have not had good uh, good at you know, experience with mine.
3: And I think that one one of the things that's very important is for for you. We meet so many different people, from caseworkers to uh, other people that you know we need to meet with, to attorneys, and just a lot of people we're meeting with, and so many things, so many people in different roles and and uh, have different responsibilities and positions that. I think it's very necessary to have someone there to advocate and say, here, this is what the caseworker's responsibility is for. This is how mm-hmm. you hold them accountable. Here's what the attorney needs to do. Here, This is how you hold them accountable. This is their responsibilities. Because when I was young, I know that I need to meet with a caseworker like every couple weeks or a month, month or so, or meet with my attorney. Um, like again, same exact same with Alexis, like the day before court, she comes in. She basically says same as mm-hmm. before, you're doing okay. I'm like, yep. And then she just writes on a sheet of paper. I see her in court the next day and that's it. And um, that was pretty much it. And I, I think I never, even though I did have struggles in the system, I never fully understood people's roles mm-hmm. As far as I think my understanding was it was just their job to check in on me. And I had no idea how to hold them accountable, Mm -hmm. what to ask for, what to even report to them. And it just came and said, How are you doing? You doing okay? And that was pretty much it. And they they took some notes on the sheet and left. So Mm. I think if we have somebody there who can or at least hold them accountable to say once you meet interact with a youth, every single meeting you remind them your responsibilities. What uh, power does the youth have with them? What is the What can a youth do with an attorney? What's the relationship dynamic and how should that look? Same with caseworkers and everybody else. So I think that communication should be mandatory and implemented in many trainings and have that communicated. And also maybe make it mandatory to uh, have more communication than just one meeting, but, but more or less, uh, maybe more frequent or it's not as so transactional like the day of or day before court. Um, I don't exactly have any specific ideas around ways we can do that, but I think the conversation needs to be had on ways we can do that.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, your experience is still what we hear from too many kids Mm -hmm. today. When we work Mm -hmm. with kids in the system today, either at Kids Speak Advance or others, when they tell their stories today, it's very similar to what what you're explaining their their relationship or lack of relationship with uh, those folks who are supposed to be representing them. So, so Shannon, how do we fix this?
2: So many ideas.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so Matt, if I may, um, I wanted to ask Justin and Alexis a question. Sure. Did you guys ever um, advocate for yourselves in court? Were you ever allowed to speak? Were there ever hearings where the judge asked to hear directly from you?
4: No, I never, I never went to court. I ha- I know I had a lot of hearings, but I was never asked, did I want to come? Did I want to speak? Did I want to do provide a statement? You know, I was never asked to do any of those things.
3: Mm-hmm. For me, it was pretty much mandatory for me to be in court. And mm-hmm. I think that was a pretty good expectation for me to be there and people who are making decisions on my life and having conversations about me that I needed to be present. So I was always in court. Um, and, uh, the first judges that i had maybe because i was younger i don't know that they didn't ask me as much but uh still at a young age they would talk to me and ask how i'm doing how am i doing in school how do i feel so again i think i needed a supportive adult around to to help me advocate for myself and help me understand that um if something was going wrong how do i report that or how do i advocate as far as areas which i need help um mm-hmm. because even if someone asks you how you're doing as you know many youth don't know how to advocate for themselves so you don't know what to say or what to do or what to tell this person and their responsibility so uh, there was I was always in court and, and pretty often the judge and other people would ask me how I'm doing and everything mm-hmm. and as long as my grades are good and I wasn't getting kicked out which I was sometimes getting kicked out <laughs> of school or out of different homes um they didn't have too many uh, other questions outside of that
0: mm-hmm.
4: yeah so yeah. The only three experiences I had in court that I know of I do cannot think of any other times where when I testified against my biological father I went mm-hmm. to sentencing and then when I got adopted <laughs> so yeah. those are the only three times that I actually appeared in court I was never even offered the opportunity to to do anything outside of that
2: and so I mean that, that it's so interesting that you guys both had disparate experiences, mm-hmm. but but also similar. you know, So I think not that I want to put the um, the honest on the, the youth to advocate for themselves, but I think that what you were saying, Justin, about having some way to inform youth of their right to advocate, I think that mm-hmm. that there, there is, a misunderstanding among practitioners about whether or not youth are allowed to be in court, which I think, you know, I think that's a problem. I think that especially as you get older, your voice is incredibly important in your case, you know, and I think that, helping um, the youth to know what to say, to explain to them how a court hearing goes, get them comfortable speaking to the judge. But it also, you know, it's getting the judges to engage the youth during the court hearing, you know, ask them the questions so that they, you know, maybe they won't speak at the first hearing, but if they're coming every three months or every time there's a hearing, then they might have more of a comfort level with the judge to actually be honest about what's going on. Um, I, I've worked with youth when I, you know, we'll, we'll role play, we'll talk about, help them write a statement. This is what I want to say on the record. And then they get into court and it, they just freeze up, you know, and so I think that there needs to be a lot of advocacy around that. I think that the meetings outside of the courtroom, um, both happen, it happens with parents, attorneys, as well as the youth. There is no way that you can properly advocate for a client if you are only spending five minutes with that client before the court hearing. Mm-hmm. And um, the problem that that there is with the system, it's you know, which is a lot of the problems with the system boil down to this, which is money. You know, the attorneys are not paid a living wage. You know, to represent either the youth or the parents, and so they take the work a lot of times because they have a passion for it, but they can't spend a lot of time if they're not making um, enough money to do the work. And so Mm -hmm. there, you know, I think that there are some counties that have done public defender offices that take on this work. I think that that is helpful because then it's somebody whose salary, they're getting a living wage. They're going to be compensated for their advocacy. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times with, lawyers in the regular system that are, you know, court appointed or just getting paid per hearing, they're not getting paid for any work they do outside of the courtroom. And they're not getting paid necessarily for motion work, which in the normal court system is where most of the decision making is done is through motions. And so there's just not that sort of zealous advocacy happening in the child welfare system. And, you know, maybe because I'm a lawyer, I feel like lawyers have such an opportunity to impact a case by like, just like what you said, Justin, holding people accountable, you know, they're there to say like, well, worker, did you do what you were supposed to do, you know, to move this case forward? And instead of having people come in and say, oh, we didn't make the recommend, you know, the referral this time. So we'll get to it next time. Let's just adjourn out for three months. And, you know, as if people's lives aren't impacted by that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that we're looking at the funding structure for legal representation. It could make a huge impact training um, for lawyer, guardian ad items and also parents attorneys, um, particularly, you know, some trauma informed training, some training around how to engage young people in the court process. I think that could be particularly impactful. Um, and I think, you know, there's money now coming down, um, through the federal funding to sort of pilot some programs. You know, let's, let's test some different models and see what could work in Michigan. So there's a lot of opportunity, I think, with the, um, the court proceedings, legal representation. And there's a big movement underway. I know at the, um, the American Bar Association is working on the issue of how to really engage youth in their own cases. And I think that that is something that in 2022 could be a big focus for Michigan of, you know, bringing youth to the table, getting, you know, let's hear directly from them. They're the ones that are impacted the most by these cases, of course.
3: Mm-hmm. I think Here, I have absolutely- um oh, go ahead. Just to- I I was just going to say real quick, I thought you brought up a great point around like the caseworkers and attorneys being overworked and underpaid and Mm -hmm. it's not really incentivized to go above and beyond and that that needs to be done. So I just thought that was a great point. And um, understanding that now as an adult, I never understood that. And I was uh, kind of bitter and resentful throughout my teenage years and for a lot of years, uh, because I wasn't receiving the help I needed. But um, as an adult, I now understand that, you know, a lot of people are sometimes doing their best, they just can't, you know, have so many cases. And, and it's not again, like I said, it's not incentivized to go above and beyond, and they overworked a lot of times. So yeah.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: No,
1: I agree completely. I think I think the funding structure needs to be Absolutely examined and, and revamped. And and are there, similar to before, Shannon, are there other states that have done this? Have they, have they created a statewide funding structure or a state pool of funding for this? I mean, to my, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but in my opinion, the big part of the problem here in Michigan is it's locally driven and the locals yeah. are trapped and they're not prioritizing this, but creating a state funding model or structure mm-hmm. um, could address a lot of these
0: issues.
2: Yeah. I mean, I know there are other states that have different funding structures. You know, I think that in Michigan, like you said, it's at the county level. And so, you know, the, the quality of legal services, you know, depends on money. And so some counties... And it's interesting, too, because sometimes it's the smaller counties where the attorneys get paid more. They have less cases. And because they have less cases, they can't really find attorneys to do the work. So they pay a lot more to get attorneys to take the cases. And then you have counties like Wayne, where the need is is so extreme and the um, the pay is is very limited, you know, and
3: Wayne County, please. Uh
2: (laughs) (laughs) you know, God love Wayne County. I mean, they have so many struggles. It's, it's such a large County. They have the most kids in out of home placements, you know? I mean, I think that it, it, you know, that's a microcosm for all of the ills of the foster care system right there in one county, you know. But that's is, exa-
1: Yeah, but you're exactly right. I mean, that's exactly why we shouldn't have a county-based funding right. system for court representation. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous because the needs of Wayne County for all courts, sorts of different services and issues are great. So, no, I, I'm all for that. I think the task force hopefully can be the impetus, the task force report can be the impetus to really uh, drive the change that's needed in this area because I think it's a significant uh significant area, a significant need and could lead to some real improvements and improved outcomes. Um, Mm -hmm. And really, you know, in in getting back to what what we're talking about and really putting a lot more of the focus on the kids Mm -hmm. in care and making sure that they're Needs are met, and that they are being fairly represented and adequately represented through this process, as they should be. And I love the idea of of pilots about getting them more engaged in their own mm-hmm. their own uh, cases and in their own uh, ability to to work through the process as it goes through. I think these are all real strong positives that could have some real impact.
2: I think there's a there's a little known. Um, Uh, part of the law. And I don't know, Alexis and Justin, if you knew this, but if you, um, if a youth is an older youth and they are not in agreement with what their lawyer guardian ad litem is advocating for, they can actually request to be appointed their own attorney. Mm. And I think that there could be some interesting work even there. You know, I think the lawyer guardian ad litem you know the role is slightly different than an actual attorney-client. You know they're there to listen to what you want, but then they go to court and they say what they think is in your best interest. But in the um, if you ask for your own attorney to be appointed, then it, it is that traditional role of the attorney is there to advocate for what you want, whether or not they agree with it. And I think that that is an it, that's an interesting area too. Mm. Um, obviously, I have a lot of passion around uh, legal representation and child welfare. Well,
1: I want to thank you all for being here today. And Once again, as I said, uh, we're going to dig into more on the kinship care side of of the report and some of those issues, I think, in our next podcast here in January. But I want to thank uh, Shannon, certainly, for the work that you're doing. Uh, Thank Justin and Alexis for the work that they're doing, not just here in Michigan, but around the country. Uh, and thanks for taking a little bit of time to to speak with us today. Um, and I want to thank our audience for listening as well. We really value you and hope that you will share this podcast uh, with other colleagues and friends in any way that uh, you think it can be useful. And to access this podcast from our website, please visit us at uh, www.Michigan'sChildren.org backslash Speaking for Kids, the podcast. And it can be found under the resources tab on our website as well. Uh, On that resources tab, you'll also find a link to the task force force report that we've talked about there, as well as links to Alexis' and and Justin's work that they're doing um, on behalf of kids as well. So (laughs) check back here often for other episodes of Speaking for Kids, and don't forget to look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again, everybody.
0: You've been listening to Speaking for Kids, the podcast for Michigan's children with host Matt Gillard. Thanks for joining us. To explore these and other issues relevant to our state's children, youth, and families, and to build your advocacy muscle, go to our website at www.michiganschildren.org. You'll find links and news about past and future podcast topics under our resource tab and action alerts under the take action tab. Find and like us on Facebook and Twitter. Terry Bannis and Stephen Wallace produced this podcast. Contact them with your questions and ideas for other topics. Michigan's Children is a nonprofit advocacy organization, an independent voice working to reduce disparities in child outcomes from cradle to career through policy change.